and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, hello everyone all over the world. I hope you're doing well wherever you are. Quite literally all over the world. Had listens over the, uh, over the length of the show from six of the seven continents. Antarctica is always a tough nut to crack, but sooner or later I'll get one of those emperor penguins down there to, uh, to sponsor the show or at least listen to an episode. Yeah, all over the world, 87 countries and counting, folks. It is amazing to me. And I am deeply appreciative from the bottom of my heart to each and every one of you who listen, to every person who's ever reached out to me on social media or elsewhere, just to give me any kind of feedback, be it positive, be it room for improvement, be it whatever it is. I am truly and eternally grateful for what you do. I was on recently with the boys from the old 77 podcast. They asked me to come on a week earlier than they had planned because they had another guest who was sick, couldn't make it, and had to reschedule. So I was on there, and we had a good chat. Now, for those of you that don't know, I've got a long-running relationship with the team over at uh, the old 77 podcast in Jefferson City, Missouri. One of the hosts of the show I've known for many, many years, and he's been a great help to the Paranormal Sun and just helping me go from being a... (laughs) IT audio Cro-Magna, probably up to, I mean, I'm at least average by now, I'd say. I've done a pretty good job learning on the fly how to do audio engineering and everything else. There are things that I do now that are second nature that a year ago I would have been freaking out and panicking trying to fix. So to Scotty, Matt, and Dave over at the Old 77, thank you always for your support and thanks for the assistance. Yeah, we had a good chat, though, over there, folks. They asked about how the volcano in Tonga, how the volcanic eruption had affected us down here. And for anyone else wondering, the answer is not very much, because we're quite fortunate. There's quite a gulf of water between us and Tonga. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I'll have a very quick Google for you. Um, Yes, I do know quite a few people from Tonga. Uh, Tonga, most Tongans, as a percentage of the population, actually live overseas, mainly here in New Zealand and in Australia. Uh, Tonga to New Zealand distance. But uh, yeah, it is a very sad day that anybody had to die from that and that any of them were affected. So it's a little bit closer than I was saying to the boys. I thought it was about the distance from Hawaii to the West Coast, but it's not that close, uh, not that far, sorry. It's 2,382 kilometers point to point. So it's about 1,480 miles, roughly. And that's a straight line through the air, obviously. But then there's nothing really keeping you away from Tonga here, meaning if you sail the ship straight from New Zealand to Tonga, there's no other islands in the way. Well, there might be a few small islands, but, I mean, you're not going to have to make any big diversions. But, yeah, definitely my heart goes out to the people in Tonga. Um, When I was a boy... That's one of my earliest memories is Mount St. Helens. And Mount St. Helens occurred in 1980. And so I was very young, but I still remember seeing the coverage on the news. I remember it getting dark outside during the day. I remember us getting ashfall. So at a very, very young age, that's one of the first things I can remember is dealing with the uh, with the fallout from Mount St. Helens. 
and I do hope that Tonga gets back on its feet as quickly as possible. Yes, there was a tsunami. Yes, it did hit parts of New Zealand, but it really didn't do much damage, aside from people's boats. And when I say people's boats, I mean more pleasure craft than people living on their boats. There may have been people living on their boats that had them damaged. And for that, of course, as always, uh, uh, I do feel bad for them. But in general, it didn't cause a massive amount of damage here. Uh, it was uh, Fiji's much closer to Tonga than New Zealand. And they heard the explosion loud and clear there. The tsunami hit there as well. But again, I don't think it caused a lot of damage. But it definitely inundated the coast there. So yeah, interesting times. As the old Confucius saying goes, may you live in interesting times. And my friends, we definitely are living in interesting times. So that's one of the upcoming shows that I need to get done and out is predictions for 2022. I mean, we're nearly to the end of January and I will get that done. But the holdup is trying to get the episode I did with Timmy and Dave edited and released. I've still got a little bit to do, but that'll probably be the next episode after this. So we basically had a roundtable uh, wrap up of 2021 and a little bit of a talk about what's coming up in 2022 in our minds. And yeah, just that good banter that we all enjoy. A little bit of talk between all of us, what we've been up to in that. We did have some audio issues on that episode, and that's one of the things that's taking some time to edit, because I'm trying to remove a rather persistent echo, but I'm getting closer and closer uh, as we speak. Each time I edit a bit more, it sounds a bit better. So one other thing before we get into the episode proper, uh, yesterday, I believe, yeah, it was yesterday, I was sitting there and I had a message from friend of the show, Nate Odd, from Instagram. So for those of you that don't know, did a couple of excellent episodes with Nate. Nate's based in Pennsylvania. And so when I did four different episodes on kind of the strange and bizarre happenings in Pennsylvania... I did two of those with Nate because Nate is a local expert. He's an urban explorer. He's gotten out there and he's explored. So, yeah, uh, Nate sent me a message and he said, you're never going to guess what's happened, but a bridge has collapsed today in Pittsburgh. And then he sent me the photos and I was like, wow, OK. So it, another issue with the infrastructure uh, aging and not being able to upkeep it, not being able to afford it. Now, I believe that bridge is about 50 years old, and that's when a lot of the stuff in the U.S., uh, things like bridges and freeways and that, a lot of it was built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So yeah, the, the bridge collapsed, and I have a bit of a chuckle, and the only reason I can have a bit of a chuckle is it looks like no one was hurt. But yeah, Nate sent me the photos, and I was like, wow, you know, breaking news here from our Pennsylvania chapter president. And then here, uh, all the way down in my corner of the world on the 6 o'clock news, lo and behold, there's that uh, Pittsburgh bridge collapse. And we were watching the news, and Vice said, oh, wow. I said, yeah, I knew about that because my friend and friend of the show, Nate, told me about it and sent me the photos. So it was kind of cool to have that inside scoop. Now, of course, I'd much rather have that inside scoop being that Nate had just won a $300 million Powerball uh, uh, pot or something like that. But yeah. Nonetheless, it just goes to show there's always something going on in this world in each one of our cities and towns that the uh, greater world might not know about. Now, the reason that probably made news more than it normally would was that Joe Biden was flying into Pittsburgh to talk about infrastructure repairs and 
the need for budgets to repair stuff like this. So yeah, interesting one there, definitely. And I am really thankful that no one was hurt. Now, another point that I needed to bring up that uh, my friend Dave at the Old 77 has mentioned. Uh, Dave, thanks for reminding me to mention it on the show tonight. I just wanted to give a very quick um, acknowledgement of the passing of Harry Reid. So Harry Reid was the senator, and he had a lot to do with the defense department and um, I think it's the Senate Defense Select Committee, something like that in the U.S. Well, Harry Reid was one of the people who's been pushing for more openness and clarity. Uh, um, you can call it disclosure, but I would call it much more openness and clarity around UFOs and UAPs in the U.S. So it is sad to see Harry Reid pass away because he's one of the people that was really working for this. And as politicians go, again, Friends of the show, I mean, you've heard me go on tirades about politicians around the world, and, and in general, yes, most politicians are out there looking after themselves, and I get that's a very human trait, but uh, yeah, uh, look, at least Harry Reid was doing some positive things there, it looks like, in trying to get some of this stuff released, and it is a sad day that he's passed away. Uh, it was funny, you know, a little bit of a quick diatribe. It, it was funny. The other night I was flipping through the channels and there was an episode of The Daily Show on and they just happened to be talking about senators and and insider trading and, and making money off of stocks. Senators and um, so Congress people at large, senators, representatives and their aides making millions and millions of dollars. And I was like, yeah, and, you know, when, when has this been new? It's been going on for as long as I can remember. Uh, I mean, my whole life, all of them, they, you go into office relatively poor and you come out rich. And yet again, it's another connection between the Roman Empire and the U.S. Uh, political engine. I mean, that was one of the reasons why people in Rome, especially successful military commanders, that's why they wanted these commands. Julius Caesar basically became uber wealthy after being the governor of Gaul, which is modern-day France. He went away to France, uh, Gaul, and it was one of the richest provinces, and basically whatever he conquered, he got most of. And yeah, I get that it's not exactly the, the same parallel, but look at some of these people who have gone into Congress, especially the Senate more than the House. They've gone in relatively uh, middle class, let's say, and come out filthy rich. It's just one of those things, and to me, it's it's uh, to me, it's quite sad. And the reason I say that is, in a perfect world, it wouldn't be about just making money. You would go and you would serve your country and try and do a good job, uh, and not worry about coming out loaded. But I mean, it's the same here, uh, not as not to the degree as in the U.S., and it's the same in many other countries. Politicians get into the game to get rich. At the end of the day. Um, so, you know, it is what it is, but I, I did find it interesting that they're going on about this. Oh, insider trading us like, yeah, that's been going on for at least my lifetime. And I'm sure much, much longer. I mean, it's, it's part and parcel of Washington, DC. So no shock there, but, uh, yeah, folks, we've got a bit more going on. Uh, as far as the show, show goes, I've got another interview that's wrapped up. Uh, I'm just waiting to hear back from the guest to make sure that they're okay with that episode before I release it. So rest assured, I am working hard behind the scenes. 
Now, again, for those of you that may have missed the memo, in the near future, uh, there's a job role out there that I'm going to be applying for. And if that happens, and if I start going through the process of interviewing and everything else, yeah, things are going to get a bit different around Tower Studios. And the reason is, obviously, at the end of the day, i got to go for that role. So that's got to take precedence. Now, I don't know quite what we're going to do, but I've been warning you for the whole year and a half plus that I've been doing this program that there would come a day where I was going to have to get out there and start earning a living again short of having someone roll along and sponsor the show to the degree that I could stay home and do the show full time. Now, again, this isn't a guilt trip. I, I don't blame anyone. The world's tough and it's hard for people to make ends meet. But yeah, that has never eventuated. I've never had some big corporate sponsor roll along or any anyone else that's uh, really paying the bills. There have been friends and supporters that have sent, sent me small amounts that have allowed me to continue the program, and I really appreciate what you've done. But all I'm saying is, podcasting as a career, it's not paying the bills. So I'm going to have to go out there, if I get this role, and take it. Now, what are we going to do when that happens? Who knows? Could it be we do episodes fortnightly or every two weeks? Could it be we do shorter episodes? Right now, um, I'm undecided, and we will cross that bridge when we get there. But I just, as always, I want to keep you posted, the listeners. And like I say, all of you around the world, you do mean much more to me than you may think. I appreciate the listens. I appreciate the feedback and the comments. And just that positive, you're on the right track, JT. You're doing a good job. We enjoy what you do. So again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. Now on that note, as far as supporters and you supporting the program and the appreciation I have, I've got a friend who has a podcast in the true crime genre. She does a great podcast. Her name's Michaela. And here she is in her own words to tell you all about Murder Squared. Are you looking for a new podcast to listen to? Are you looking to fill your library up? Well, then you found me. Hi, my name is Michaela and I'm the host of Murder Squared. Here we talk about the solved, the unsolved, the missing, the murdered, and pretty much anything and everything in between. Murder Squared is available on all major podcasting platforms. So if you're ready, get squared away and let's talk murder. It's about time for us to get into what is the meat of this episode, the meat in the sandwich, which is the news of the damned. Now, for those of you that don't know, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Ford, and he was interested in the same sorts of things that we're interested in. Cryptids, strange lights in the sky, strange objects falling from the sky, out-of-place historical artifacts, disappearing people and all of the other things that we enjoy so much here at the Paranormal Sun. Well, Charles Fort gathered notes on these strange happenings, 30, 40, 50,000 index cards full of notes, and then he later wrote a series of four books about it. Now, Charles Fort referred to anything that was excluded or ignored by science as damned data, 
Therefore, this segment, the news segment on the paranormal sun, is always known as the news of the Right, so here we go. Tried to have a good mix for you uh, as far as different topics, as I always do. The first one here is from Coast to Coast AM. Now, again, if there's anything you want to watch, a lot of these have got videos in them. Or if you just want to go and check out the article for yourself, you can just go into the show notes and click on the link there. So the first one here says, watch, eerie black triangle seen hovering in the sky over Pakistan for hours. And is often the case. I will try and watch this as, um, as, I, as I read this for you. Just want to see the video really quickly. So the person's filming it with an iPhone. Yeah, it does look pretty interesting, whatever it is. So, let's read the story for you. So it says, An intriguing piece of footage from Pakistan shows what appears to be a black triangular object hovering in the sky, and the witness says that it remained in place for hours. The puzzling sighting reportedly occurred on Tuesday evening in the city of Islamabad, shortly after Arslan Warich had landed a drone that he had been operating moments earlier. Looking up at the sky, he was astounded to see the curious object and began filming it with his cell phone. The fairly long video provides a remarkable perspective on not only the UFO, but also of Warich's bewilderment, as he can't help but express his amazement at what is in the sky. This is unbelievable, he marveled, arguing that the oddity was neither a drone nor a bird. Amusingly, even though he was observing an unidentified flying object in the sky, Warich seemed to almost grow bored with the sighting, as he muses that it's just sitting there not doing anything. I want it to do something, like whiz by or something. Alas, the, pe the peculiar object remained stationary for the duration of Warich's sighting, which is somewhat amazing in and of itself, since he claims that the UFO was visible for at least two hours until the sun was down and it was too dark to see. As for why he didn't send his drone up to look at the sky, he lamented that the UAV had no juice in it, or else I could have taken some epic footage. What do you make of the mysterious object that Warich caught on film? So, if it's anything like the other ones, well, I would say if he sent his drone up, this object would probably take off. So, yeah, and, and look, it is interesting. And again, it just goes to show that all the people out there that say, oh, well, everyone's got a smartphone and they should be able to film these things. Why aren't people filming them? Well, they do. But anyone who's ever pointed their iPhone at the moon and tried to get good photos of the moon can see the issues with taking photos of things like this, especially with zooms. I don't know for sure, but I think that in iPhones and that it's a mechanical zoom. It's not an actual optical camera lens zoom. So there's a big difference between the two. But yeah, I mean, interesting nonetheless. Again, these flying triangle, black triangle sightings have been going on for 50 plus years all over the world, and they continue to show up. Now, <laughs> it's easy to say things like, oh, stealth fighter, stealth bomber, 
but number one, not hovering in the same spot in the sky. Number two, what are they doing over Pakistan? So yeah, interesting nonetheless. So on to the next one, which has also got to do with something strange. And this is from Fizz.org, Fizz.org, I believe it is. Yeah, Fizz.org. And this is from January the 26th. It says it's by the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research. And it says, says, mysterious energy source unlike anything astronomers have seen before. Right. A team mapping radio waves in the universe has discovered something unusual that releases a giant burst of energy three times an hour. And it's unlike anything astronomers have seen before. The team that discovered it think it could be a neutron star or a white dwarf, collapsed cores of stars with an ultra-powerful magnetic field. Spinning in space, the strange object sends out a beam of radiation that crosses Earth's line of sight and for one minute in every 20 is one of the brightest radio sources in the sky. Astrophysicist Dr. Natasha Hurley-Walker from the Curtin University node of the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research led the team that made the discovery. This object was appearing and disappearing over a few hours during our observations, she said. That was completely unexpected. It was kind of spooky for an astronomer because there's nothing known in the sky that does that, and it's really quite close to us, about 4,000 light years away. It's in our galactic backyard. The object was discovered by Curtin University honors student Tyrone O'Doherty using the Murchison Widefield Array, or MWA, telescope in outback western Australia and a new technique he developed. So shout out to my friend and friend of the show, loyal listener John out there in Western Australia. So you get a mention here because it's in your backyard. I don't know exactly where that telescope is, but I'd say it's not in Perth. So it says, in a new technique he developed. It's exciting that the source I identified last year has turned out to be such a peculiar object, said Mr. O'Doherty, who is now studying for a PhD at Curtin. The MWA's wide field of view and extreme sensitivity are perfect for surveying the entire sky and detecting the unexpected. Objects that turn on and off in the universe aren't new to astronomers. They call them transients. ICRAR Curtin astrophysicist and co-author Dr. Gemma Anderson said, When studying transients, you're watching the death of a massive star or the activity of the remnants it leaves behind. Slow transients like supernovae might appear over the course of a few days and disappear after a few months. Fast transients, like a type of neutron star called a pulsar, flash on and off within milliseconds or seconds. But Dr. Anderson said finding something that turned on for a minute was really weird. She said the mysterious object was incredibly bright and smaller than the sun, emitting highly polarized radio waves, suggesting the object had an extremely strong magnetic field. Dr. Hurley Walker said the observations match a predicted astrophysical object called an ultra-long period magnetar. It's a type of slowly spinning neutron star that has been predicted to exist theoretically, she said, but nobody expected to directly detect one like this because we didn't expect them to be so bright. Somehow it's converting magnetic energy to radio waves much more efficiently than anything we've seen before. Dr. Hurley Walker is now monitoring the object with the MWA to see if it switches back on. If it does, there are telescopes across the southern hemisphere and even in orbit that can point straight to it, she said. Dr. Hurley Walker plans to launch, or sorry, to search for more of these unusual objects in the vast archives of the NWA. More detections will tell astronomers whether this was a rare one-off event or a vast new population 
we'd never noticed before, she said. MWA Director Professor Stephen Tingye said that the telescope is a precursor instrument for the Square Kilometer Array, a global initiative to build the world's largest radio telescopes in Western Australia and South Africa. Key to finding this object and studying its detailed properties is the fact that we have been able to collect and store all the data the MWA produces for almost the last decade at the Pawsey Research Supercomputing Center. Being able to look back through such a massive data set when you find an object is pretty unique in astronomy, he said. There are no doubt many more gems to be discovered by the MWA and the SKA in coming years. The Murchison Widefield Array is located on the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory in Western Australia. The observatory is managed by CSIRO, Australia's National Science Agency, and was established with the support of the Australian and Western Australian governments. We acknowledge the Wajari Yamatji as the traditional owners of the observatory site. So apologies there if I've just butchered that uh, Aboriginal group's uh, name. But yeah, interesting, very interesting. And it seems like every time we point something up at the sky, we find out something new. Just goes to show, folks, those people that think that we've got the universe and everything else all figured out are dead wrong. There's always something new to learn out there, and I don't think that's going to change for the rest of my life. I think there'll always be things getting discovered uh, when they aren't kind of subverted by people or groups. There are always, th always things being discovered that we will continue to marvel at when they hit the mainstream press. So I hope you find that interesting. Now, the next one here, uh, this is an homage to Nate. It just happened that I saw this, but Nate Odd in Pennsylvania. You'll definitely want to check this one out, and I'll send him a link to this and see if he knows anything about it as well. So this one says, Pennsylvania mystery creature escapes animal rescue. And this is from Coast to Coast AM. And this was on the 27th of January, so just a few days ago. The tale of a mysterious creature that stumped experts in Pennsylvania has taken an unexpected turn as the odd animal somehow managed to stage a daring escape from the rescue center where it was being housed. The enigmatic critter made headlines earlier this week when it was learned that a woman had rescued the oddity, which appears to be some kind of canine, and wildlife experts were stumped as to whether it was a dog or a coyote. Intending to have the creature genetically tested, one hopes that samples had already been obtained as the animal is now nowhere to be found. According to an update from the organization Wildlife Works, which was tending to the mystery creature, a staff member arrived at the building on Thursday morning and was met with the horrifying sight of a destroyed empty cage and thrashed hospital area. The group went on to explain that the animal was apparently bound and determined to flee the scene as it chewed through a window seal in order to open it and then rip through the screen. And then there's a photo below, it says, and made off into the dark night. Not in our wildest dreams did we expect something like this, Wildlife Works lamented, describing themselves as devastated over the animal's escape. The brazen getaway is particularly puzzling to the organization, they said, since they had been caring for the creature over the last week and it had never acted aggressive or distressed, nor showed any indication that it wished to escape. Although they theorized that he was starting to feel somewhat better and decided it was time to go. Staff from the rescue group are nonetheless searching for the animal in the event that it needs additional care or was injured during the incident on Wednesday evening. Considering the strange nature of the creature and its jaw-dropping escape, one can't help but wonder 
if it was neither a dog nor a coyote, but rather the infamous Chupacabra. So I'm just looking at these photos. So it's just got the photos of kind of the destroyed cage slash kennel and the window screen that it's crawled out of. Just want to see, because I know there was a photo floating around I saw somewhere when I was um, looking at this article, and it did look like a very mangy-looking dog-slash-coyote type creature. Uh, okay, so they got a video here, of course. I don't want a video. I just wanted to see a still, but nonetheless, yeah, it's a pretty rough-looking um, critter. And there's a video here. Right. Okay. So it's six news. Okay. Fairfield Township, Pennsylvania, looks like is where it is. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So I'm just listening to the commentary here, folks. So sorry for that. Uh, interesting one. Right, so they're saying very timid. So yeah, interesting one there, folks. Uh, and again, there's a link in the show notes if you want to watch that video that I just read. Or sorry, that I was just giving you commentary on. Okay, now on to the next one. And this is near and dear to my heart for two reasons. First off, I'm originally from a state whose official state motto is the Gem State. But unofficially, it's known as Idaho famous for potatoes. Secondly, this is from New Zealand. So this was actually on the news, um, and they've been covering it here on our quote-unquote six o'clock news, but just in bits and pieces. And this is from coasttocoastam.com as well. And this one is titled, DNA test required to prove world's largest potato contender is genuine. And they got a photo of a potato, but it's not anything what this what this potato here looks like. Says the tale of an enormous potato thought to be the largest ever found has taken a strange turn as the owners of the Titanic tuber say their quest to claim the world record is now dependent upon the giant vegetable being DNA tested in order to prove that it's genuine. The jaw-dropping spud, which can be seen in the video below, sparked worldwide headlines last year when it was unearthed from the garden of Colin and Donna Craig Brown in New Zealand, weighing a whopping 17 pounds, the giant vegetable appeared poised to take the title of world's largest potato. However, its owners now lament that the tuber's road to glory has been fraught with challenges, including demands that it be DNA tested. Reflecting on the process of trying to obtain the world record from Guinness, Colin lamented to one New Zealand media outlet that it's just a never-ending case of having to do whatever they ask for next. In the months since the massive potato was plucked from the ground, the Craig Browns say that they have supplied the famed book of records with photos and a video of the spud, which they've dubbed Doug, and had the huge vegetable examined by an expert, as well as publicly weighed in order to confirm its prodigious size. However, that staggering array of steps was apparently not enough for Guinness. Not me, but the Guinness World Records book. That's an inside joke. Who ultimately informed them that a piece of the potato needed to be DNA tested in order for the record to be official. What began as a fun pursuit centered around the comically large potato found in their garden has turned into something of an ordeal for the Craig Browns, 
which Colin mused to another media outlet in New Zealand, has been a roller coaster of emotions. Calling the required DNA test extremely deflating, the Spud's proud owner wondered if the record keepers suspect that the vegetable size is the result of some kind of shenanigans involving genetic modification, which he insists is not the case. To that end, he declared, I want to prove them wrong. We will do everything they ask of us, so at the end of the day, they can say yes or no. As such, a small piece of the potato will soon be sent to a university in Scotland, where it will be tested in order to prove once and for all that the stupendous spud is, indeed, the world's largest. Sadly, the wait for word from Guinness has understandably taken its toll on poor Doug. As Colin says, the tuber began to get smaller and smaller every day, to the point that the couple decided to freeze the vegetable in order to keep it mostly intact until the moment comes that it is either awarded the record or their peculiar dream is finally dashed. While the Craig Browns would obviously like to see their spud receive the title, Colin appears to be okay with whatever the final determination may be since at the end of it all, it's still just a bloody potato. Very pragmatic view of a typical New Zealander here. Now, here's a little bit of an insider scoop that you won't know unless you live in New Zealand. So when Colin was on the news, he basically said he was thinking about um, if Doug was verified as the world's largest potato, he was thinking about making some homebrew out of Doug, maybe some vodka. So yeah, that'd be a very interesting one for you. And I'd definitely line up, or as we say in New Zealand, queue up to try out that vodka. I'm sure it'd just taste like vodka, but it would be cool to say you had had vodka made by the largest potato ever grown. Rightio. So on to the next one here. This is also from Coast to Coast. And this one says, watch, baffling flying object filmed by home security camera in New York. All right. So I'm just going to, so it was in Utica, New York, and there's a video here. It's only 10 seconds, so I'm going to watch it really briefly. It's got a cat in the background. You can see the cat's night eyes um, looking at the camera. Let's see. This. Uh, yeah. Um, it basically looks to me like. <laughs> looks like a string or something kind of like thrown in front of the camera. It's odd. Um, let's see what the article has to say. A very weird piece of security camera footage from a residence in New York State shows a puzzling object fly across the room, but when the homeowner says there was nothing on the floor when she went to investigate the situation. The bewildering video was reportedly captured around 3 in the morning this past Saturday in the city of Utica, at the home of a woman who opted not to reveal her identity. According to her, the camera had been set up, in her office to watch over her new puppy, which was in the bedroom at the time of the incident. Their slumber was shattered when the system alerted to something amiss in, in the room, and when she looked at the footage, the woman was left with more questions than answers. In the video, what appears to be a dog toy can be seen sailing through the room as if someone or something had thrown it. However, when the woman got out of bed and went into the office moments later, she was left scratching her head when there was nothing on the floor where the toy had presumably landed. This is particularly perplexing, since the baffling flying object made a distinct sound, yes it did, when it seemingly hit the ground, suggesting that the oddity was not merely some trick of light from perhaps a passing car. Skeptical viewers will no doubt say that the video was simply that of someone throwing a dog toy across the room, and then coming up with a clever story to make it sound supernatural, which is certainly a strong possibility, and I'd have to agree. 
Others, of course, will pose that perhaps the camera captured the antics of a ghost who happened to be missing the dog that night. What's your take on this particular piece of footage? Okay, so look, we're going to watch it again because it's only 10 seconds. So it's kind of ambient room sound. Yeah, and you see it fly across. And the sound is definitely after the object flies past. Now, why I'm saying that is when I first watched it, you can't tell the size of the object. I mean, there is the cage and the kennel in the background, and it is quite large compared to that. All right, so let's watch that again. Come on. Rewind you. Okay. Yeah, it is weird because you can see in the footage, it looks like there's something under the couch, but that item is there the whole time. So what I'm saying is it's there before this thing flies across the room. So in other words, if it was this thing having landed and slid under the couch as you might expect on this, what it looks like, kind of a either a linoleum or a hardwood floor, uh, it wouldn't be there at the beginning of the video. But yeah, it does seem to just like vanish once it lands. So interesting one nonetheless. Little interesting video there. And on to the next one here, and this is from The Sun UK. So thesun.co.uk has got a very contentious uh, reputation for being tabloid at its finest but again i don't go out and yeah if if it's not like something that's obviously a spoof site like the onion i don't really go out saying oh this is fake or this is real or it's just they're covering it in my mind so uh, i i don't really care where the source is as long as it's not uh jim's jim's uh jim's ghoststories.com and the reason i say that is um at least if it's a published kind of ongoing, um, I'm trying to think of the right name for it, kind of an ongoing entity or publisher, uh, they tend to be a bit more, uh, a little bit more um, exacting with their scrutiny than just somebody publishing a blog or something. Now, anyway, here uh, here's our story, and this is from the 28th of January, so again, just a couple days ago, and it's from Lottie Tip Lady Bishop, and it says, Phantom Menace, ghost hunters capture smelly six-foot ghost at one of Britain's most haunted buildings. A crack team of ghost hunters say they've run into a six-foot-tall spirit that stinks of B.O. The team has been raising, or sorry, casing the historic and apparently haunted bowling hall in Bradford, West York's, for paranormal activity. And this photo that it shows it shows a very blurry object, almost like a distortion. Think of like um, in the movie The Predator where they've got that kind of distortion field. That's what it kind of looks like um, in the middle of this room. Okay, so it says the hall is one of the oldest buildings in Bradford, with parts of it dating back to medieval times. And lead investigator Dean Buckley said it is very active. Dean and his team of mediums, which includes his partner Veronica, toured the haunted halls late in the night, even capturing some snaps of what appears to be ghostly figures. Describing the moment the ghost-hunting crew stumbled upon the stinky ghost, Dean told Yorkshire Live the team were scrambling up the stairs after a mysterious tall figure when the stench hit them. He said there was a smell about him. One of the investigators said, oh, there's an awful smell, and could sense the figure. 
It's like body odor, like someone who hasn't washed for days. Dean, who had got more than 20 years of experience in the field, <coughs> apologies there, folks, told how he had started off in the hall's blue room, where he saw a woman on the side of the bed. He said, I started off in the bedroom, the blue room, and during the first part of the night, I was taking some photos and saw a woman in the room, on the side of the bed. There's also another picture I took later through the night, about 1.40 a.m., and it's like a face on the right-hand side of the bed, of a male coming through, and I thought that's what the mist in the bed is. Sorry, the mist on the bed is. Dean, who explored the hall with his team last weekend, said the haunted hall is now in his top 20 favorite ghost hunting spots. I'm looking at this photo. Uh, doesn't really look like a face to me. But again, we all have our opinions. Right. So I'm looking at these photos, and there are some interesting photos here. But the main one is that first photo I discussed, that kind of blurry photo. Ironically, Blurry Photos is one of the podcasts that I've really enjoyed over the years. Um, <laughs> great name for a podcast. I mean, they, Dave, David... Uh, David Floor has been doing it for over 10 years now. So, yeah, uh, I mean, he first in uh, first in best dressed, as the old saying goes, got one of the great names there with uh, blurry photos. Well, so anyway, if you want to see those photos, go and check out the link in the show notes. But um, I mean, there's it's not like a full blown apparition, but it is very odd. And it's oh, I'm always interested to see things like this. So the next one here we've got is from ladbible.com and it says uh, and I'm assuming that's ladbible.com and sorry folks just trying to scroll past the ads because everybody loves ads it seems on these pages scientists used a computer to predict exactly when society would collapse and I've heard I'm pretty sure I've heard this experiment before but we shall see so this is from Claire Reed, published the 20th, or sorry, published the 25th of January. Back in the, yeah, okay, this is definitely the one I've heard of. Back in the 1970s, scientists used computer modeling to predict when the fall of society would kick off, and according to their findings, you might not want to make any long-term plans. Scientists from the MIT uh, University, so it spells it out, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but everyone calls it MIT, in the U.S. especially, looked at data patterns from a variety of different factors, such as population, natural resources, and energy usage, to find out when we'd experience full societal collapse. The prediction made by these researchers was that the fall of society would hit near the midpoint of the 21st century, 2040 to be exact. So, 18 years away. Wonderful. At least I can stop worrying about whether all I will be able to save enough to buy my own place one day. So let's see, 18 years away, basically 20. Well, JT should be retired by then, so of course it's going to be the fall of society. You know, it's, uh, yeah, what else would I expect? The team study, which was published by the Club of Rome, identified upcoming limits to growth that would cause the industrial collapse. However, at the time, the report wasn't taken too seriously, and did attract some ridicule, the Guardian reports. But before you start to feel smug and set up that lifetime ISA, in 2009 a different team of researchers did a similar study, which was published by American scientists, and concluded that the model's results were 
almost exactly on course some 35 years later in 2008, with a few appropriate assumptions. It is important to recognize that its predictions have not been invalidated and in fact seem quite on target. We are not aware of any model made by economists that is as accurate over such a long time span. Further to this, just last year, Dutch sustainability researcher Gaia Harrington also affirmed that somewhat the somewhat bleak predictions made in the study. Speaking to The Guardian, Harrington, who works at multinational accounting firm KPMG, said, From a research perspective, I felt a data check of a decades-old model against empirical observations would be an interesting exercise. And her findings were about as grim as you can imagine, according to Harrington. Current data aligns with the predictions made back in 1972 that had a worst-case scenario of economic growth coming to a halt at the end of this decade and collapse around 10 years later. But before you decide to pack it all in, Harrington did have a bit of optimistic news. She told The Guardian the key findings of my study is that we still have a choice to align with a scenario that does not end in collapse. With innovation in business, along with new developments by governments and civil society, continuing to update the model provides another perspective on the challenges and opportunities we have to create a more sustainable world. Maybe take a look at that ISA after all. Now, I don't know what an ISA is, folks, so um, yeah, uh, apologies there. It's obviously something that I haven't heard of before, but uh, yeah, it is very interesting. Me personally, I'm of a I'm of a mixed bag about the future, uh, future of humanity, so to speak. So I am quite pessimistic, as you would already know about the games that politicians and power brokers play. But I'm also optimistic about humanity's resilience and the ability of humanity to bounce back from disaster. I cite, for example, the fall of Rome. Many people thought that that was going to be the end of the world. And basically, people living through it, I can understand why you may think of it going from a civilization with roads and as centralized laws and tax systems and everything else into this fragmented type of warrior king type mentality uh, fiefdoms and the like. But uh, there are things going on in this world that are going to be very, very difficult for us to survive if we don't stop doing what we're doing. Now, you can sit there and deny global warming all you want. I do think that Mother Nature and the universe in general have got a lot more to do with it than humanity. But it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, folks. If we're in a sauna, it doesn't matter if we've turned up the temperature or if someone from the outside has turned up the temperature. The bottom line is you're cooking, right? And that's what's going on. Like You can deny it, but to me, I've seen weather change and temperature changes in my life that I never would have thought were possible when I was a kid. Um, when when I was growing up, I was talking about this with the boys on the old 77. But when I was growing up in the Pacific Northwest, we would get our first snow on the ground in around Halloween and definitely by the beginning of November. And then we would basically have snow on the ground all the way through to March, April, May, depending on the year. But now over the last 20 years or so, I've seen times at Christmas time where it'll be 50 or 60 degrees Fahrenheit where I'm from. At, at Christmas time, which was absurd when I was growing up, if you would have said that, you would have thought somebody was 
definitely had gotten into a bad batch of moonshine or something because there's no way you would have thought that that was going to happen. Between things like that and the pollution that mankind is dumping into our environment and only a moron would try to deny that we're having an effect on the world, you go and look at that massive amount of crap sitting out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that has come from humanity. There's no one else that we know of anyway. There's no other group making plastics on this planet and dumping them in the ocean and trying to bury them and then waiting a thousand years for them to degrade. It's, yeah. So basically, there are things that if we don't turn our ass around, um, our progeny and future generations are not going to be around. Yeah, so I'm of a mixed bag. I am really always amazed by the resiliency of life and mankind. But I also think that we're going to be in some serious trouble if we don't start turning things around. Okay, so on to something a little bit more lighthearted. Now, this is an old one, but I found this interesting. And this is another cryptid one, and this is from Coast to Coast AM. And this is a video, and I'm going to watch the video here. And it says, watch, flying dragon filmed in China with a question mark. And again, there's a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. And just try and, yeah... Yeah, I I understand why people do this, but it's always annoying when I'm trying to do it for the show. And I have got a video with a kind of precursor. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. It's got one of those AI voices, which is really annoying. Uh, I'm not a fan of those AI-generated voices. Look, it's it. And I get that it could be CGI, but nonetheless, it's really interesting to me. So let's read the article for you. An intriguing video from China purportedly shows a mysterious flying creature that some think may be a dragon. Very little is known about the five minute long piece of footage, aside from the claims that it was filmed in a mountainous area of China near the Laotian border. So that's southern China for those of you that don't know. Laos is next to Vietnam, Cambodia. In the clip, an, anonymo- uh, an anomalous animal appears to be majestically sailing through the mountains as it flaps its enormous wings. The breathtaking nature of the footage and fantastic possibilities it suggests have led the video to amass over 200,000 views on YouTube in just a handful of days. I'm sure it's much higher than that now. Paranormal enthusiasts theorize that the creature in question could be a dragon or a pterodactyl. Skeptics, however, argue that it is probably a CGI hoax, while others have even proposed that the anomaly is actually a drone, although that seems less plausible than the dragon hypothesis. Yeah, I I could be wrong, but especially being that old, I don't think it was a drone. Uh, it's flapping its wings. Okay, so check out the remarkable video. Yeah, interesting one, folks. If you want to see an interesting video, maybe turn the volume off because that voice to me, I hate those AI type voices on YouTube videos. But yeah, interesting one nonetheless. Good one to check out. So I've saved the best for last because many of you will know who Yuri Geller is. He became super famous in the 70s for his spoon bending uh, phenomenal. And this is from unexplainedmysteries.com. 
And this is from January the 28th, so literally yesterday in the U.S. Yuri Geller claims that an alien mass landing is imminent. The Spoonbender-in-Chief believes that a recent discovered neutron star is actually evidence of aliens. Scientists this week had revealed the discovery of a mysterious object situated 4,000 light-years out in space that was producing a set of anomalous sig signals which stopped after just three months. So this is the uh, same object, and I didn't know this. Very rarely are these articles kind of lined up, folks. I just kind of... As we would say here, Lucky Dipper in the U.S., you kind of potluck out the articles and read them. So it is quite interesting that this ties into that article about that anomalous object. They eventually concluded that this was a new class of neutron star known as an ultra-long-period magnetar. However, Israeli spoonbender Yuri Geller isn't convinced by this explanation. Known for his out-there claims and predictions, Geller instead maintains that the signals that were detected were in fact alien chatter indicative of an imminent invasion. A team mapping radio waves in the universe has discovered something unusual that releases a giant burst of energy three times an hour, and it's unlike anything astronomers have seen before, he wrote. No doubt in my mind that this is connected to alien intelligence way more superior than ours. It could be. Start deciphering their messages. They are preparing us for a mass landing soon. Exactly why we would, or so, exactly why he would believe that signals detected 4,000 light-years away would be an indication of an impending invasion of Earth, however, remains a complete mystery. So, I guess the bottom line is, folks, he's got a right to his opinion, as we all do. People tend to want to take something like this and use it to tar someone as, for lack of a better term, a nutter, or mentally unstable. But when you do look at some of the claims that Yuri Geller's made over the years, I don't know if he's trying to get attention, but many of these claims are interesting, let's just say. So he has claimed that mine power moved the Suez Canal container ship that got stuck. He's also claimed that he saw aliens at NASA. He's claimed that aliens are preparing to make contact with us in... Uh, a few weeks ago in December, and he's also claimed that he knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. So again, I don't know if it's just him wanting attention or what, but again, I'm not going to personally attack the man. Um, he may very well know if, he's, if he has some type of psychic powers, but I do find it interesting that it's not just that it's aliens, but they're getting ready to attack us. It is an interesting one, folks, and I'll leave it at that. So, folks, a rather short episode, I guess, even though we got through all nine articles of the News of the Damned. I do hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that you have a great week. And I'm going to go and get a few hours of sleep after I get this edited and released, and then I'll be back in the studio, rest assured, working away on those interviews that I told you that I'd done before and I'm trying to get done and released. So look forward to those coming out in the near future. When I say the near future, sometime in the next week or so. Like I say, one I'm waiting on some feedback and a couple others, I just got to get them edited to a point where I feel I can release them. And it's much more kind of background noise and echoes than that. So my friends, I hope that you do have a good week. I hope that you take care. You stay safe. And I'll talk to you soon.